Welcome to the Business Bookshelf podcast, where I interview business authors and talk about their newly released books. Today, I interview Robert J. Kolhep about his book called Build a Better Organization, How Effective Leaders and Strong Culture Can Create a High-Performance Organization. Bob joined Centas Corporation in July 1967 as controller. Over a span of 50 years with Centas, he was promoted to positions of general manager, vice president, and treasurer, executive vice president, president, and CEO, then served as vice chair and board chair until retiring in 2016. Additionally, Bob has served on several associations, corporations, nonprofits, and university boards. Bob is the author of Build a Better Organization, How Effective Leadership and Strong Culture Can Create a High-Performance Organization. In looking for help and understanding on how to build an organization and to select and manage your people, a good place to start would be to look for an organization that did that exceptionally well. So I talked to Bob about the importance of culture and having happy staff, about Syntas's recruitment process, how to retain your best people, the importance of having high expectations of staff, and I even asked Bob if his incredible success and work ethic at work affected his private life. So you can look forward to that question and all the other questions during the interview. So here we go. Enjoy the interview. Thank you, Lance. Thanks for having me. That's super having you. Thank you so much. Bob, where am I speaking to you from today? Where do I find you? Cincinnati, Ohio. And were you there throughout your history of working for Centas? Yes, I've lived here my entire life, traveled all over the world, but uh, always hung my hat in Cincinnati. Bob, congratulations on your book. I really enjoyed it. Can we start by you giving us an overview of the book and maybe the purpose for you writing the book? Well, uh, I was very blessed, I believe, to have worked for a company for just short of 50 years that was tremendously successful. And uh, I learned, I was surrounded by uh, some very good leaders uh, in the company and experienced uh, tremendous growth, tremendous success, and just feel blessed to be part of that and uh, learned a lot of things along the way in building a company uh, from a million and a half dollars to seven billion. And uh, uh, I felt like I needed to share that with uh, others. I've done a lot of teaching at CentOS, at universities. And uh, so many times people walked up to me and said, you should write a book. And I never quite pulled the trigger to do that. And uh, I just feel like uh, to take all of the knowledge and the experience that I've had in taking a company from such a small company to a large company is something I should share with others who face some of the same hurdles and problems and situations that I faced in my career uh, so that hopefully they could learn from them. So that was why I wrote the book. Mm. Now, Bob, you're being a bit modest about your career at Centas, 50-year career, because you started right at the bottom and you finished up right at the top. Could you tell us about your, your journey through Centas and where you started and you know, the different levels that you went up and where you ended, ended at Centas? Yeah, sure. I started in 1967 as controller. Uh, in the uh, early 70s, I was promoted to vice president treasurer. Uh, then uh, a few years later to executive vice president. In 1984, I was uh, 
promoted to president and chief operating officer in 1995 to uh, chief executive officer in uh, 2003 to vice chairman uh, in 2009 to chairman and retired in 2016. Wow, that's incredibly amazing. So let's get into your book, Bob. Now, your first part of the book is devoted to culture. And Sintas has got a hardworking culture, six days a week. Um, and you, you say during like your interview process, which I think we'll get on a bit later, that you, know, you hire people for that. You know, if they're not prepared to work six days a week, then they're probably not cut out to work for Sintas. Um, could you tell us about the culture? Why is it important? the culture and how important, important is it to have a happy and satisfied staff or as you call them partners? Yes. Well, the culture, every organization has a culture. Mm. Uh, if you think about your family that you grew up in, there was a culture there established by your mother and father. If you think about the high school or college you went to, they had a culture there. Uh, every organization has a culture. And one of the things we realized a uh, number early on in my career was that we did not define what our culture was. And the reason that was important is as we brought new people into the company, uh, we, we were not determining whether they were compatible with our culture. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, we wanted to define the environment that we wanted to CentOS to operate within. Uh, you know, what did we believe in? What were our values? What did we feel strongly about? Uh, how did we treat our people? How did we feel about our customers? All those things make up an organization's culture if they're a business. And even if they're a nonprofit, there, there is a culture in every organization. Very few companies or organizations take the time to document what their culture is. And we believe that was very important so that everybody understood, here's the way we want to look. Here's the way we want to act. Here's the way we want to treat people, our customers, our, our employees, who we call partners. And if you don't commit that to writing, it becomes the culture of the person or handful of people running the company. And it's constantly changing as new people come in. So we wanted it to be the Sintas's culture, not our founder's culture, not my culture, uh, not my successor's culture, but the Sintas culture. And that's why uh, we wrote the book. Now, when you think about from a competitive standpoint, one of the things that we believed was it was our ultimate competitive advantage. Uh, it was intangible. It was difficult to copy, difficult to emulate. Every new product, every new idea we came up with, our competitors copied it as fast as they could find out about it. But what they couldn't do is copy our culture because it wasn't tangible. It wasn't something you could feel and trust. And when I would teach our corporate culture course, I would always end by saying this, you know, a company is like a big boat and everybody who works for the company has an oar. And, and half the organizations you look at today in the United States and in the world, I think, half the people are rowing one way, half the people are rowing the other way. Yeah. But if you can get the majority of the people, the vast majority of the people rowing in the same direction, it becomes an awesome force. And that way we were able to accomplish that was by, by defining our culture, teaching our culture, hiring people who are compatible with our culture. And, and that's why we were the dominant company in our industry. And the culture of Sintas, you know, from 1967, when it was one and a half million dollars to today, has that culture basically remained the same? Because I've spoken to a lot of authors about culture. 
And, and they say it's incredibly difficult to change a culture once it's in place. So was that an intentional act of putting that culture right at the beginning and then following through you know, year after year? Yes, uh, the culture should never change, in my opinion. The basic values don't change, but how those values are manifested can change. For example, one of the things that the, the hallmark of our character is professionalism, being professional, looking professional, acting professional at all times. Today, we define that as still wearing business suits. The men in our company wear business suits with ties. The ladies wear business suits when they come to work. Uh, very rare today in the United States. That could change in the future. The day may come when we consider corporate casual professional. What will never change is the value of being professional. What could change is how do you manifest what professional looks like? And so I think the basic values, things like honesty and integrity, those are values that should never change. Uh, how you have, have, have integrity might change in the future. What is considered integrity could be different in 2030 than it is today, but the value of integrity should never change. Honesty was also really, really high up on your list. Uh, you personally, as, as a very, very high um, standard within your professional life and your work at Cintas, and you tell stories about how you know you try and contact someone and they misled, uh, you know, the, the organization for where they were, and then you you know you took them up on that particular area and stuff like that. So, honesty plays a very big part in your life and Cintas's life, eh? Very much so. And uh, one of the things that's so important, I think, when you're dealing with uh, people, people who work for you, people who work, uh, your peers alongside of you, your boss, uh, how can they trust you if you aren't honest? How can they believe what you're saying if only three quarters of what you're saying is truthful? Uh, and so we, we fostered trust and the way you achieve trust with people you work for and people who work for you and people you work with is to be honest, to tell it the way it really is, not the way you think it should be or you know it should be, but the way it really is. And I think uh, that trait permeates our company and enabled us that, you know, when your boss told you something or she, he, she, or he told you something, you could count on it. When you mm -hmm. told people you were going to be there Thursday at 10 o'clock, you were there unless you got an automobile accident or something. So, you know, you could rely on people, you could trust people. And the only way you accomplish that is if they have honesty. Mm. And, and you're very fair. Uh, that comes across in your book as well, where you seem to, you, you, even though you were a chairman and CEO, you still took the time to actually meet with people, explain to people, talk to people, and even discipline people directly. And you seem to be very fair to, to your partners as well. Well, yeah, I think that's also another way to build trust. Uh, uh, and I would tell you, you know, when you first had somebody working for you, uh, we would have a performance review when first, the first person took a new job in six months and then a year and then every year thereafter. I would spend a couple of hours uh, in that performance review talking to the partner about you know, how, how they're work, how they're doing their job, how, how they're stacking up against their job description, how they're doing against their goals. And we'd never be a lot of di dialogue back and forth uh, because it's, again, that's how you build trust. And sometimes it might take two or three reviews before a, a partner 
would realize that when I was hard on them or tough on them or held up the mirror and said, you know, you're not doing that, you're not doing this. Uh, they realized, I think, after a couple of reviews that I was doing that not to be tough on them, not to be difficult, not to be mean, but to help them become better. And once you and the way you build that trust is, again, being very frank with people, being fair with people, treating one of the things we used to say to people all the time uh, is, you know, if you have somebody work for you, treat them like you would your own father, your own mother, your own brother, your own sister. And if you do that, they will they will begin to respect you. They will listen to you. They will feel uh, close to you and, and the company. And that's the way I believe you have a relationship where you can have those frank discussions. Yeah, absolutely. So just to remind the listeners that we're speaking to Robert J. Colehap about his fantastic book, Build a Better Organization, How Effective Leadership and Strong Culture Can Create a High Performance Organization. Now, if we can move on to another area uh, of syntaxis, and that's recruitment. And I, I was very surprised at the lengths you go when your recruitment process there. Can you take us through and particularly interested in sort of, you know, if, if anyone has a reservation about a particular hire, you know, what happened then? Okay. Well, we created a process we called meticulous hiring. Mm. And we created that process because we realized that when we look back at some people who didn't make it with the company, most of the time we concluded we shouldn't have hired them in the first place. And that was our fault because we didn't thoroughly check them out. We didn't share with them the values and the culture we had in the company and determine their compatibility with it. Um, and so we created this system called meticulous hiring. It involved many interviews uh, frequently, uh, uh, a prospective employee or partner would go through 10, 12 interviews. Uh, after all those interviews occurred, all the people that were in the interview would get together and talk about what they learned in those interviews. Sometimes you'd find some shocking things when you all got together. For example, sometimes the same question was answered differently in different interviews. Mm. And we, we would usually find that how the, how the person answered the question in the first interview was their most truthful answer. Sometimes they thought about their answer and said, well, I could have answered that a little differently or a little better. <laughs> so they'd answer it differently the second time. And in those meetings, if we had one person who didn't feel we should hire that person, we wouldn't hire them. Wow. We'd also ch check their backgrounds carefully. The interviewing process was very well thought out. It was based on the premise that past behavior predicts future behavior. So we'd ask a lot of behavioral questions like, have you ever fired someone? Tell me about that. Mm. What's the hardest decision you ever had to make in your life? Why? How did you handle it? How did it come out? So they would always be those kinds of behavioral questions, because what you're trying to get at is when a person had a situation that they faced in their in, in previously, how did they deal with it? Because the likelihood is they will deal with it the same way when they face that question again. And if you didn't, so we'd have specific questions looking for specific answers. We always had the knew the answer we liked. Sometimes we'd get an answer that was better than what we were, were, were looking for. Uh, but but if you, the other thing that drove us to do this was when we defined financially the cost of turnover. Mm. We found that a, if you lost a janitor, it cost you two to three or $4,000 to replace them. And if you think about the time to hire them, the time to train them, 
the, the mistakes they're going to make when they first learn the job. It was several thousand. You got up to an executive it was millions of dollars. And so that's what it said to us. We got to be a whole lot better at hiring so that we don't have turnover. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we did all this. And it, uh, it, it has served us extremely well. And were you also patient with your new hires when they were brought on board? Um, because I, I imagine there needs to be considerable effort, like you said, training them, et cetera. Did you, you know, did you put pressure on them to deliver results straight away or was there a bit of a, you know, finding your feet period before, you know, they became active contributors? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, that probably varied by the level of person. If you hired a, a vice president, you might have expectations of them contributing more sooner. If you hired someone right out of college, it would take several years. And we same way about adapting to our culture. We understood that when a person joined our company, particularly if they joined us from another company, that the culture at the other company was different than our culture. They didn't work as hard. They didn't have the same expectations that we had. And people can't adjust to that overnight. It takes time. So we were very uh, tolerable uh, with the differences at times. We would talk about them. But, but usually after about nine months to a year, we'd say, you got to get on the bus or you got to get off the bus. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, uh, yeah, we, were, we, were, we didn't expect results day one. And again, if it was a college graduate, it might be several years. If it was ex- executive, it might be six months, eight months, nine months before we would expect them to, to produce and, and be compatible with how we ran the company. So part two of your, your book is about people. And we've been speaking about people, the recruitment process, et cetera, and the, the cost of replacing them. And so could you give some advice, uh, people listening to the podcast who you know, want to retain their best people? What, what advice would you give them in order to do that? How do you treat people so they want to stay at Centos? Well, uh, first of all, the ones that are really performers, you make sure they're well paid. Uh, you try to get them in an ownership position if that's possible in your company, uh, because uh, it, 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 it tends to uh, bind them to the company a little better. The old golden handcuffs uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you listen to them. You have them participate in helping run the company. Uh, you value their opinion. Uh, you're honest with them. You try to improve them. You give them training. Uh, you show them opportunity as to why, if they stay with the company, they can get ahead. Um, when you, we would, if we had somebody walk in and say, uh, Hey, Bob, uh, I got a better job here. I'm going to be leaving in two weeks. I'm sorry. I like it here and so forth. We would fight like crazy to keep them, particularly the ones we thought were good performers. And I would tell you that not 50%, probably a quarter of the time we were able to talk people out of leaving uh, because a lot of times uh, the, the prospective employer they're going to is painted a rosary, rosy picture about what it's going to be like going to work there. Sometimes we'd create doubt in their mind about whether it was really going to be as good as they thought. Um, but I think uh, the main thing is to show them opportunity, to explain to them why they have a, a great future with the company, to have them participate in running the company, listening to them, valuing their opinion, uh, pe- people have need of people have a feeling of belonging are are a lot less likely to leave a company. And the way you have that they have that feeling is they they feel like they are actually have a say in what 
how things happen at the company. Mm -hmm. So I think you do all those things uh, and the really good ones, you take care of them. And would you... Would you forget those, those people that wanted to leave um, and, you know, handed in their resignation, would you try to forget that that happened if they stayed with the company or would they have a black mark against their name? Not at all. We wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't bother us at all. Oh, great. Uh, if, if they left two or three times, that's different. Uh, but, but once, uh, absolutely. In fact, even if they left, we'd stay in touch with them and try to convince them to come back. But no, wow. we would absolutely, you'd never want to slam the door on a good employee. You want to keep the door open. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So then part three, leadership, which is obviously very important. You've had vast experience in it. Now, something that caught my eye and my attention was having high expectations of your staff and, and yourself. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about that? Because I asked you about fairness and, and that sort of thing, but you also had very high expectations. So how did you balance that with you know, setting those, those objectives that were a stretch to get for, for your staff and yourself? Okay. Well, I think having high expectations is absolutely critical. Uh, I used to always tell people aim high. And I used to always tell people the road to success is under construction. There will be orange barrels in your way. You have to learn how to go over them, through them or around them, but you got to get by them. Um, and if you have that mindset, you can accomplish just about anything. Uh, expectations have to be reasonable. They can't be so high that it's impossible to achieve them. Uh, they have to be measurable. Uh, I've seen so many times people have a, a goal, or give somebody a goal and say, uh, improve the uh, uh, past due accounts receivable. Well, what does improve the past due accounts receivable be? By when? By how much? So too often goals are not specific and measurable. And any expectation or goal that you have for someone has to tie in with the overall objectives of the organization. Uh, because if they're inconsistent with what the company or the nonprofit that you work for is doing, then what good are they? They don't, they don't accomplish anything. Uh, and I think, you know, at times in my career, I would set unreasonable expectations and realize it after the fact. Most of the time I didn't. Uh, but when, and when I did, I'd go to the, the particular person and say, hey, I was aiming too high here. Now that I see what, what you've had to deal with and what the uh, extenuating circumstances were, say you had economic recession or something like that, I think this goal was too high. And so I think when you do set it too high, you have to admit it and you have to explain to the person, you know, that you don't, you're not unhappy with the fact that they didn't achieve it. But it's all about communications. But I do think uh, uh, if you think about your own life, your own career, and you think about the people who got the most out of you, could be a parent, could be a coach, could be a boss, could be somebody in the military. They have one thing in common. They have high expectations of you and they helped you over the humps. Sometimes they encouraged you over the humps. Sometimes they screamed you over the humps, but you got over the humps and after you got over those humps a couple of times, you said to yourself, well, this wasn't that hard, I can do that. And then guess what? They did it to you again. If you aren't doing that for the people who work for you, you're shortchanging them. The art of being a great manager and a great leader of people is learning how to stretch them without breaking them. And the way you stretch them is you have high expectations of yourself and you have high expectations of them. So Bob, as we are drawing to the end of this interview, and I want to ask you a personal question um, that, uh, so looking back, you regularly spend 80 hours at work, you know, per week for, I imagine 
the majority of your 50 years at Sintas, if not all of them, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you do mention that in the book. Do you, do you looking back, do you think that was time well spent um, or would you, looking back, do you think you should have spent slightly less hours at Sintas or, or you know, do you think that was the right amount? The 80, the 70 to 80 hours was not at the company. Uh, I mean, I would, I would take thing, work home and work on Saturdays and Sundays sometimes, uh, at night. Uh, so the ADR, the 70, 80 hours was not at the company. I might spend, uh, typically, uh, uh, 55, 60 hours at the office, uh, or doing my job and another 15 or 20 hours reading and doing things on weekends and so forth. Uh, I think. If in our company, if you're going to be successful as a top executive, it takes that kind of commitment. And I think if you went to any Fortune 500 company CEO or C-suite executive, they would tell you they spend that same amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in looking back at it, uh, I, I would say uh, there were times in my career where I would have preferred to be at a family affair or a family event or one of my kids soccer games or whatever it was that I couldn't do it because of my uh, uh, responsibilities getting my job done. I was very fortunate to be married to a woman who uh, was able to deal with that. I always was with my family when I needed to be, when it was an important matter. Uh, And I would always, when we'd go on vacation, we were fortunate as I, particularly as I got further along in my career to go to some very nice places on vacation. I'd sit down with my family and I'd say to them, do you know why we're able to go here? Do you know why we're able to afford to do this? It's because your dad's working Saturdays and Sundays and reading and he's in his office all the time. Uh, and so you have to share what you're accomplishing with your family so that they appreciate uh, what you're doing and how it manifests itself to them. Uh, so, but there were times when I would say, gosh, am I spending enough time with my kids? Am I spending much time with my family? I was very blessed to have a wife who under, who accepted my ambition. I'm not sure she ever understood it. And, uh, and, and, and she was a, a great mother and helped me raise three wonderful kids. So they're all very grounded and very successful themselves. And so, uh, it all worked out, but there, sure there, you, it's a balance between, uh, work and personal life that people have to uh, do. And some people are in a situation where they may have needs at home that require them not to be able to work seven or eight hours a week at their job. And I understand that family should come first. And when my family needed me, I was always there, but I did work hard and fortunately it all worked out. Super. Thank you for answering that question. Uh, the last question that I have for you, Bob, is what are you doing now? Uh, obviously, writing a book and promoting it. Does your work ethic extend to your retirement as well? Um, you know, what keeps you busy at the moment? Well, I certainly don't work 70 or 80 hours a week anymore. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but I do, what keeps, what keeps me motivated now is uh, being able to share my knowledge and experience with my children. Uh, uh, we have a family office that my daughter runs and we spend a lot of time together and talk about a lot of things. Uh, I am involved in a number of uh, nonprofit things because I have more time for that now than I did earlier, although I was always on a nonprofit board, even through my career. Uh, uh, and so I do more of that. 
writing this book was something I would not have able, been able to do when I was working because there wouldn't have been time. Yeah. But fortunately, I had the time to do that. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do a lot of things to help people. Uh, Roberto Clemente, the deceased baseball player, once uh, wrote, uh, if you have the opportunity to help others and fail to do so, you've wasted your time on earth. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time taking the knowledge and experience that I've been so blessed to have and sharing it with other people and helping other people uh, perform better in their jobs or in their nonprofit or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, uh, as I say at the end of my book, when you die and face your maker, He's not going to ask you how many cars you have or how many boats you have or how much money you have or how many friends you have. He's going to ask you one question. What'd you do for the people you left behind? And my personal feeling is you better have a good answer for that question. So, Bob, thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for writing the book. I really learned a lot. And I'm, I'm part of a small company, 20 or 25 people, but I, I can just see, you know, how it resonates with our company. And, and that what the the values and the you know the, the different culture you have we really trying to put it into our company as well and and instill it uh, that that I could just notice the the similarities obviously and I encourage everybody um to go out and I have the link in the show notes I've been speaking to Robert J Colhep and his book is Build a Better Organization How Effective Leadership and Strong Culture Can Create a High Performance Organization so thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, Lance, thank you for having me. And I enjoyed it as well. And I hope you, the listener, found this interesting and as useful as I did. As I said, the link's in the show notes. Please click on it, buy it. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is lance at ideastorm.ca.za or you can visit the website, businessbookshelfpodcast.com. You are going to find any book that you want, if, whether it's leadership or how to run a company or culture or innovation or communication, you'll find an interview. Um, well, we're speaking about them today, but um, you know, you'll find lots of other interviews around those topic, topics and then the books that you can buy. So until next time, stay well, stay safe and goodbye. Cheers. <laughs>